Good to be here with you guys. Did you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving? Or medium? Hopefully you threw your scales away on Friday. You know, you don't need that reminder. <laughs> uh, well, it's a pleasure to be here with you guys. Uh, Tim is on vacation this week, and so it's my privilege to be able to bring the word for you guys. And uh, we're going to be continuing on in First Peter chapter 2, so if you have a Bible, turn there with me. If you need a Bible, stick up your hand. One of our ushers would love to give you one, and uh, we'll be in First Peter chapter 2 for most of our time this morning. So if you turn there and stick your, your insert page, your note page in there, and and use that as a bookmarker. Well, just a quick update, too, because I know uh, many of you have asked already. Um, you know, I'm in the process of applying for senior pastor jobs. Um, it's a, a tediously awful process that takes really a long time. And um, I am in final stages with a church in Austin, Texas. I think I mentioned that last week. Uh, but I have not heard back yet. Last I heard, the search team met on Wednesday. And made their decision of which one of the three guys they were going to call. But I haven't heard back yet, so it's just like, I don't know if that's good or bad, or the holidays, or I, I don't know. So that's where I'm at with all that, um, and have a few other irons in the fire, but nothing kind of along those same lines at this point. So, uh, But yes, very excited about having Clint and Rob on staff, and the hope for the elder team is to actually have some overlap uh, with myself and them together just to aid in the transition time. So if you're wondering how that's going to look, like they're not going to show up and I'm not going to leave that day. <laughs> right? It's be a little overlap. We want that. So, uh, so that's where that's at. Um, so you guys find First Peter chapter 2? Excellent. So I found, this, I found this in my yard. How many of you guys have something like this in your yard? Right? It's decomposing. Granted, it's garbage, right? But we have a lot of it. Um, all you need to know is if you've dug a, a post hole in your yard, you've, you've come against one of these uh, quite often, I'm guessing, right? And unless you have one of those rare dirt-only lots. Uh, but, you know, my boys, they love to, they love to gather rocks. Uh, every time we go camping or on a hike or we go to the beach, I, I get out of the car and there are rocks everywhere. Like they just collected them, stuck them in their pockets. We find them in the washing machine. And, of course, being little boys, they like to take the rocks and they stack them. Well, yes, they do like to throw them at each other, but we don't let them do that because, you know, concussions are painful. Um, but they love to stack them up. They love to stack them up. They love to build them. And, and, and even if you walk on trails in Adolf, you'll see people who have stacked up rocks. You know, that's kind of a thing here. Um, and so, so we have this huge pile of rocks in our yard. Now, now, the piles, you know, they only last as long as one of the brother doesn't kick them over because that's what little brothers do, right? One person uh, spends hours stacking, and then in two seconds, the other brother comes and destroys the rock. Um, but, you know, this morning, we're going to be looking at living stones. And if you look at this rock, or if you look at the rocks in your yard or on this mountain, None of you would think, oh, that rock's alive. You'd think, no, it's inanimate, it's dead, it's cold, it's hard. Um, it's actually quite useless unless you use it for something, to build something. And so as we jump into 1 Peter this morning, 
I'm going to be talking about Jesus Christ, our living stone, a stone that is alive, but that has been rejected by man. And that living stone being Jesus Christ and and us as living stones like Jesus, we are being built up together as a spiritual house, a holy temple, a place in which God himself dwells. So let's jump right into 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4 this morning. We're going to go 4 through 8. He says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Now I want to start off with that phrase, as you come to him. And it could actually better be translated, as you continually come before him. As you continually come before him. Because it's not a a reference to the moment of your salvation, but of your constant coming to the Lord in worship and prayer and time in the word. And we, as sons and daughters, have been given a precious gift where we have the right, the ability, the access to come before God. Now, Thousands of years ago, that would be an unheard of thought. Because if you worshiped a God that wasn't the living God, you were afraid of him. Because his job was to punish and destroy you. The last thing you would want to do is to come into his presence. And yet, as Christ followers, Christ has made that distance between the Heavenly Father and us nothing. Think about that. God actually hears your prayer. He allows you to come before him in worship, to sing songs in in praise, to come before him in prayer and to make petition of him and, and to see his truth and his heart in his word. And I think that is an amazing privilege for us as believers that we have the right to come before our God through Jesus Christ. And listen to what Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 says. You don't don't have to turn there, but just listen. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in times of need. Not only do we have access to the Heavenly Father, but when we come before Him, we don't receive judgment. We receive mercy and grace. And therefore, we can approach the Heavenly Father with confidence, with utter confidence. You don't have to worry that when you make a prayer before the Lord, that He's going to look down on you and say, well, your life is over now. I didn't like that. I didn't like what you asked for, right? He is merciful and gracious to us and abounding in love. And because Jesus, our Savior, can sympathize and understand our weaknesses because he was a man, then that means we should, that should encourage us to continually approach the throne of God, to find and receive that mercy and grace that we so desperately need. Peter here is reminding us that we should never neglect our times of worship or our times in prayer or times in the word 
because of what a great privilege those times are for us. They should never be looked at as a burden, but something we look at with longing, that we have the ability through Christ to come before our Heavenly Father. Now, Peter tells us that this living stone who makes this possible was chosen and precious in the sight of God. Jesus Christ is the chosen one. Now, that word chosen one means that he was elected or selected in love. And then the word precious means that there is nothing else like him. Right? He is distinctive. He is set apart. He is priceless, treasured, and cherished by the Heavenly Father. No one else could have done what Christ did. No one else. There could not have been another option outside of Jesus. So Jesus here has infinite value and worth. And even though many reject him and what he has done for them, this no, in no way diminishes how the Heavenly Father views Christ. Right? Our response to Christ does not change the value and worth of who Jesus is. The Heavenly Father has set that standard, and Jesus Christ, in the eyes of the Father, is chosen and precious. Now, just like Jesus, Peter tells us that we, too, are living stones. Now, look with me at verse 5. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter compares us to living stones that are being built into a spiritual house. We are called living stones because Christ is the first living stone. And he is the cornerstone of the house on which everyone else is built. Now the contrast of a living stone here in 1 Peter is seen in comparison to the Old Testament house of God, the temple that was created with dead stones, stones that weren't alive. And that was the place where God dwelt before. But the temple of God is no longer a building built with dead stones, but instead is a temple built up with the living people of God, you and I. And we have been made alive the bible says that we have we have had our heart stony hearts turned to hearts of flesh look at what paul says in first corinthians 6 19 through 20 he says do you not know that your body is a temple of the holy spirit within you whom you have from god you are not your own for you were bought with a price so glorify god in your body Brothers and sisters, you and I are the temple of God. You and I are the temple of God. And God lives within us. Right? That's, that's not some hocus-pocus magic thing. That, that's reality. God, if you are a follower of Christ, if you have put your faith and your trust in him, God dwells within you. Now, there are several applications I, I want us to, to kind of wrestle with as we take this idea of being built up as a spiritual house. And the first application is that because we are the temple of God, 
we need one another. Because we are the temple of God, we need one another. Now, there's a thought that has crept into modern Christianity that says, all, all you need is you and Jesus. That's absolutely a lie. Absolutely a lie. Your relationship with God is not based on just you. You cannot be a Lone Ranger Christian. That idea is absolutely unbiblical and has crept in and is intended for your destruction. Because if you try to walk this Christian life on your own, you will be destroyed. We were never, ever called to walk the Christian life alone. We desperately need one another. And I would even go so far as to say that you cannot call yourself a Christian and decide to separate yourselves from other Christians. That if you do that, you're a faker and a liar. Because, it, because if you do that, you are not part of the temple of God that is being built up where God dwells himself. Paul says the exact same thing in 1 Corinthians 12. He says the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. A rock by itself is useless. You can use it as a paperweight. This is a big, heavy paperweight. Or you can use it to bust a window. But what other good does this have by itself? You can stub your toe on it when you walk. Right? It can make you angry when you try to dig that pothole or that post hole in your yard. A stone set apart by itself is not the temple of God. It is not the body of Christ. So you and I desperately need one another to be built up into what God intended us to be. No one sets a rock on a table and says, look what I built. Look how beautiful. And apart from one another, what can you build for the kingdom of God? What can you build apart from the rest of the body that's, that brings their own gifts and talents into the mix? You can bring something, you can set a rock on a table and say, look what I built. And the book of Hebrews implores us. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Brothers and sisters, as you see the return of Christ coming, you should long for the body of Christ more and more. And when you see brothers and sisters who have believed the lie that they can be a Christian without being a part of the church, without being a part of the body, then your call is to encourage them, to point them back to the truth of God's word so that they too can be a part of what the Lord is building in his church together. Now the second part that I want us to take away from this idea is that because we are the temple of God, we must recognize that the building of the temple is not complete yet. It is a continual process. Excellent. 
I don't really want to talk over the word of God. Like, that's excellent. So. <laughs> but you and, I, you and I know that we've just talked about us being built up into the house of God. And the word being in this passage means that we are not where we need to be yet. Right? This work of Christ in our lives is a process, like the building of a house. You don't put the roof up before you've laid the foundation. Right? You don't build interior walls until the exterior walls have been completed. We should not be discouraged when we see sin and failure in the church or in our own lives. It's a process, and it means that God isn't done with us yet. Be patient with one another. Be loving and encouraging to one another. Because we are not all on the same path. We are not all in the same process of being built up. We are being built into a spiritual house. Oh, I don't have my water. That's all right. I was going to use that as an opportunity to take a drink, but I left it back there. So if we focus on drawing closer to Christ, we will continually find more intimacy and joy with the other members of God's house. But the person who focuses less on his time with God will find more to complain about and more to be upset about. Instead of building the house of God, you will find yourself breaking that house down. So ask yourself, what kind of Christian do you want to be? Do you want to be a builder of the house of God, to be a participant in what he is doing? Or do you want to be one who's making the work harder, that's breaking that, those walls down and, and causing people to have to start over again? We must continually come to Christ so that we can work together to build the house of God. Now, the third point I want us to take away is that because we are the house of God, because we are the temple Everything we can do is worship. Everything you do is worship. The temple of God reminds us of the capacity of God's people to worship him. In the Old Testament, Israel had to travel to the temple in Jerusalem, to a specific place and time in order to worship, to offer sacrifices to the Lord. But we are not restricted by time and space. And everything we do can be worshipped because we, in fact, are the temple of God. Paul says it this way. He says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. He's talking about worship. Do everything for the glory of God. As I counsel teenagers and they come into my office and they always ask me, like, can I do this or that and still be a Christian? You can fill in the blank. I, just saying. But my response is always, yes, if you can do it to the glory of God. If you can do it to the glory of God, then yes. And Christians, that's our question. Can I... Eat this sandwich to the glory of God as worship. Yes, I can. Can I disrespect my wife or children to the glory of God? No, I cannot. 
right? It's the gauge in which we know we are being built up. And the last thing I want us to take away from this first section is that because we are the temple of God, we are called to be a holy people. In the Old Testament, every item in the temple was set apart as special, as holy. Even the drinking cups. They didn't even set their drinking cups in the temple unless they had been consecrated. Every single item in that building was holy. We learn a little bit more about this idea in Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, 16 and 17. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul prays for the Ephesians to be strengthened in their inner being so that Christ may dwell in their hearts. The interesting thing is that for a Christian, Christ is already dwelling in our hearts. Right? If you're a follower of Christ, God is there. We've talked about that already. But there are two words for the word dwell in the Greek. The first word means to dwell as a visitor, as a guest, like when you go on vacation. You don't live in the hotel room or on your campsite. You're a visitor. You're going to pack up your stuff and go home. But the other Greek word means to dwell as a resident, where your home is. And in this passage, the word dwell is referring to the latter. And it means that Christ has, in fact, taken up residence in your heart. And I think in the lives of many believers, Christ does not feel at home. He feels a little bit more like a visitor. And you let him in to what you're doing when it's convenient for you. And he doesn't dwell and live day by day as a resident of your heart. Christ will feel like a visitor if you don't submit your heart completely to him. If you hold things back from your own walk, your own pursuit. Christ is at home in our lives and in our church by by us practicing holiness. It's not a call of perfection, church. It's a call to practice being holy because it's hard, because our sin nature is at war within us. And Jesus said every day to take up your cross and to follow him. He didn't say to take it up once. He said take it up day by day because he knew That every day you woke up, you were going to be at war with sin and you were going to struggle to be holy. And again, it's just another proof of how desperately we need each other. How desperately we need each other because we, as the body of Christ, should be continually pointing one another back to Jesus. Now let's look at verse 6. He says, For it stands in Scripture... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now the focus of of the next several verses in 6 through 8 are going to be on the idea of believers and unbelievers. 
And Peter first here quotes in verse 6 from Isaiah 28, 16. And Isaiah 28, 16 says, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Now, this is a great passage for Peter to write to these persecuted, suffering Christians. These were people who were suffering day by day for their faith. And certainly there were some who were seeking to put doubt in the minds of these believers about their commitment to love and follow a Christ that actually costs them something. It's difficult. And these scattered aliens to whom Peter writes, they're going through some real difficult times. They were facing trouble and and fear from their government authorities. They had trouble in their jobs, in their workplace, and they had trouble at home. Oftentimes, family would just reject them straight out. And yet, Peter's promise from the prophet Isaiah surely was a support and an encouragement for these people. As he says, he who believes in him will not be put to shame. Do you believe in Jesus Christ this morning? Then you also have this promise from the Almighty God. That you will not in any way be disappointed that you put your faith and your trust in Jesus. Now that doesn't mean that your life's going to be all candy and roses. That you're not going to suffer and have struggles and trials. But at the end of the day, all the sorrow and all the grief that you face in this life will seem like nothing when you enter glory and stand before our Heavenly Father. Paul said it like this in Romans 8, 18. He said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. None of us are going to be disappointed on that day. You're not going to look back on your your life and say, oh, I wish I would have fill in the blank. Certainly as believers, as pilgrims in this world, there will be times when we are mocked for our faith, maybe even persecuted. And it doesn't promise that these times aren't going to come, but it does promise that we will never be put to shame when they do. We will share in Christ's glory. There was a really cool story about a couple missionaries who had retired and were returning home from Africa. And the story goes like this. It says an old missionary couple had been working in Africa for decades and were returning to New York City to retire. They had no pension. Their health was broken. They felt defeated, discouraged, and afraid. And as their, their boat trip began, as they sailed back, they discovered that they were on the same ship as President Teddy Roosevelt, who was returning from Africa on a big game hunting expedition. And of course, no one paid any attention to these old missionaries. But they watched the fanfare that accompanied the president as his entourage and passengers clamored upon him and tried to catch a glimpse of this great president. And as the ship moved across the ocean... The old missionary looked at his wife, and he said, something's wrong. 
Why should we have given our lives in faithful service to the Lord in Africa all these many years and have no one care a thing about us? And here this guy comes back from a hunting trip and everybody makes a huge deal about him. Nobody gives two hoots about us. The wife replied, dear, you shouldn't feel that way. The husband said, I I can't help it. It just doesn't seem right. And the ship docks in New York and, of course, the pomp and circumstance and the band plays for to greet the president. The mayor and dignitaries were there to welcome him home. The newspapers wrote of the president's arrival. No one wrote about the missionary couple. No one greeted them as they got off the boat. They slipped off the ship, disappeared into the crowd, and found a cheap apartment on the east side, hoping the next day to see what they could do to make a living in this great city. That night, the man's spirit broke. He said to his wife, I can't take this anymore. God, God's not treating us fairly. His wife's reply was, why don't you go into the bedroom and tell that to the Lord? She's a good wife. Short time later, he comes out of the bedroom. But now his face was completely different. And his wife asked him, dear, what happened? He said, the Lord settled it with me. I told him how bitter I was that the president should receive this tremendous homecoming when no one met us as we returned home. And when I finished, it seemed as though the Lord put his hand on my shoulder and simply said, you're not home yet. That's that's the, the call for us to remember, church. We are not home yet. And here on this earth, we may suffer for our faith, we may be mocked, but one day there will be honor and privilege for us when we stand before our God. Peter knew that this was important for those suffering Christians to hear. That those who put their faith in Jesus Christ will never be ultimately put to shame. One day, They will be honored before all and share in the glory of Christ. And let's look at verses 7 and 8 as we wrap it up. He says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Peter's going to spend a little bit of time talking about those who now don't believe. And in the same way, a diamond's beauty is seen most clearly against a dark surface. The glory of Christ and the beauty of his sacrifice is most evident against the destiny of unbelievers. Peter says, for those who believe there is honor... But for those who have not believed in Christ, this cornerstone that 
God has given us, there will be dishonor. Now, the picture is of an ancient construction site. And often the rocks were chosen before they were even brought to the site. The builders would look at each rock and they would determine if the dimensions were not perfect, they would discard the stone outright. This is what the world did with Christ. They looked at it and said, this stone is not worth being built upon. Except that this stone that was rejected has become the cornerstone, the most important stone in the building. Because the cornerstone is set at the corner between two walls. And it is used to allow builders to get perfect angles for the rest of the house. You begin with the cornerstone and you work outwards, building from there. And it sets the direction of the entire building. Christ was the rock that was discarded, which became the rock that was needed the most. And many in the world today often reject Christ because he declared that there's no other way to heaven other than him. The picture here is super clear, church. People are all walking on this road of life. And there's a stone in the middle of the road. And surely some could just look at that stone and walk around it. But no, they walk right up to the stone that is Jesus and they trip right over it. They stumble and they fall. People hear about Jesus. People read about Jesus. People think about Jesus. But somehow they still just can't believe it. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. He says, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. And the truth is that there are simply some who will never respond to our Savior. And Peter gives a further reason why unbelievers stumble over Jesus. He says they stumble because they were destined to. This is tough. Peter is saying that they were destined to reject Christ. Now at this point we have two options. And as I read commentaries, uh, many took the first option to just divert around it and not say anything. But I don't think that's fair. Because the second option for us is to accept what Scripture says and to pray that the Lord will give us understanding for a very difficult topic. Well, let let me shed a little light on what I think Peter is saying here. Does this verse mean that God has some sort of book of destruction, kind of like the book of life, where he has written certain people's names in that book, destined for doom? Is our God a God who appoints people to their destruction? I believe destruction is a choice. But it sort of works like gravity. You could say that God designed within gravity an appointed destruction. Because if I go to the Grand Canyon and I step off the edge, gravity is going to take place, whether I like it or not, whether I deserve it or not. Gravity will have its effect 
because that is how it was intended to be. It's built in to our world. And in the same way, the consequence for rejecting the truth of God brings a specific destruction for us. If I choose to take that step, to take that step and test gravity's law, my destruction will be complete. And God knew in his infinite sovereignty what my fate would be should I choose to make that foolish choice. In the same way, God has appointed a necessary judgment for those who reject the living stone. It's built in like gravity. It's chosen by those who reject the truth of God's word. Just like taking a step off the Grand Canyon. I don't know about you, but have you ever stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon and looked down? That is a horrifying feeling. I mean, some of you might like heights, but that, that, that is far. But I, I, really, I really want us to wrestle with this church. Um, because, again, it's, it's not an easy doctrine. And yet, I want us to also remember that God does not carry the weight of anyone's unbelief. God does not carry the weight of anyone's unbelief. At the end of time, they will only have themselves to blame for rejecting God. Because the truth of the matter is, whether you choose to step off that edge of the Grand Canyon or not, God the Father has provided a way for you to be redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. And God never rejects those that come to him on the merit of Christ alone. Look what John says in chapter 6 of his gospel, starting in verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. You and I don't need to be worried that we aren't chosen or that we've been appointed to destruction. Those that were destined for destruction are those that reject the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And Peter is saying that that truth means that they cannot get to the Father some other way, some other way besides Christ. You cannot get there on your own merit. You cannot get there on your own works on by being just a good enough person. You can stand on the merit of Christ alone, or like gravity, you can let destruction take its place in your life and reap the consequence of that judgment. That's a tough place to end, but that's what Tim gave me. <laughs> I really wanted 9 and 10, too, if you read 9 and 10, but he gets to doing that next week. Don't tell him I said that. Uh, no, it's, it's my privilege because 
you know, Peter really writes this section of Scripture to encourage believers. And I think when we face this topic of judgment and unbelief, it should give us more confidence, more steadfastness, that what our God has done for us is good, is beautiful, because we in no way have deserved it. And yet he loves us and is faithful anyways. You and I as believers are called to be built up as a spiritual house. And because of that, we've been given so many great and wonderful privileges through Christ. We have the privilege of continually coming to the Father. To stand before Him and receive the mercy and grace that He wants to bestow upon us. We have the privilege of being built up into the house of God. We have the privilege of having relationship with one another. To be a rock that's set apart for a specific purpose. And not to be set apart on our own. And we have the privilege of sharing in the honor that Christ is owed. That is an amazing truth, church. The glory that God is going to bestow on Jesus Christ will be shared with us because we will be brought into the kingdom as his own. We are co-heirs with Christ. And the reality is that some will stumble and fall when when they're confronted with the truth that the living stone is Jesus and they reject him. And that should give us a heart of compassion for the lost for those that need to hear the truth. Let us give glory and praise to our God this morning because we have been given the gift of becoming living stones who are being built up into a spiritual house with Jesus Christ as our chosen and precious cornerstone. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together, church. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, that he is the one who was rejected and yet set apart for holiness to be built up into the the beautiful temple of God where you yourself dwell with us. Lord, may we not reject that truth this morning, but may we wrestle with it. May we encourage one another as we see the day drawing near. May we build each other up with these truths and encourage one another that all hope is not lost. We have just yet to be called home. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning for your word, for the gift of Jesus, for the time we have together in fellowship as your body. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus we say, amen. Well, we get to have the privilege of coming before the Lord's table this morning. And it is an absolute picture of the temple of God. Because you have been consecrated, set apart, made holy by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So in a few moments, we're going to sing. We're going to praise the Lord for his goodness. The ushers are going to pass the elements out to you. We would encourage you this morning to hold on to those. And as you look at these elements, 
this little piece of bread and this juice, that you would consider what the Lord is doing in your life. How is He calling you to be built up into a spiritual house? To glorify Him, to honor Him, to be a part of what He's doing in this world. And to realize that what Jesus did for you and I means that we are made holy. We are made holy even though we don't deserve it. And that is the most precious gift we could ever receive. So I want us to just take a few moments as we sing, as we hold the elements, consider Jesus, consider the work he has done in your life, the holiness that he's bringing and molding you into his image, and praise him and thank him. Because our God is good to us. Amen? Amen. Let's sing together, church.